Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. Listening to Conversations with Lulu. I'm Lulu Hazan, an entrepreneur living in Dubai, an investor, a mother, and your host. Before we start, a quick note to thank our sponsor, Joy Gifts, a gifting marketplace operating in 22 cities across MENA, like Dubai, Riyadh, Jeddah, Beirut, Cairo, and more. You can download their app or visit their website, joygifts.com, and order anything from flowers, sweets, balloons. And you can get a 15% off on everything by using the promo code LULU15. That's L-O-U-L-O-U-1-5. So thanks, Joy Gifts, for your support. My guest today is a, is a, is a friend, is someone that I've known for uh, nearly a decade, Christopher Schroeder or Chris Schroeder. He's the co-founder and CEO of Next Billion Ventures. He's an active angel investor and advisor to tech startups, with a keen interest on emerging markets. He sits on the investment committee of Wamda Capital and Saudi Telecom Ventures. Most recently, he became a network partner for Village Global, which is an early venture capital firm backed by the likes of Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, Diane Green, Sarah Blakely, Jeff Bezos, Reid Hoffman, and many, many more successful entrepreneurs. He sits on numerous private company and nonprofit boards. And that's not even 10% of everything he's done. He's had a role in politics, uh, having worked with the George W. Bush senior presidential campaign. Then in 2000, he became the CEO of the Washington Post Newsweek, uh, the WashingtonPost.com and Newsweek.com, where he spent the next four years leading the business. And in 2013, he published the first book on Middle East and North Africa's entrepreneurship scene called Startup Rising the Entrepreneurial Revolution, Remaking the Middle East, with a foreword by Mark, and Mark Andreessen. And I really love the book. Today, Chris uh, speaks extensively on global innovation for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, TechCrunch, among others. And he's seen on CNN, CNBC, BBC. He was also named one of LinkedIn's top 50, uh, first 50 influencers. He's an active member of the Young Presidents Organization, or the YPO, and works on connecting uh, U.S. entrepreneurs with, uh, with Middle East CEOs and entrepreneurs. So, uh, Chris, welcome. <laughs> uh, I'm so happy with you, Lulu. Thank you for having me. There was much more, but like, I would have been reading for like a good seven minutes if I had to, if I had to yeah. read it all. Apparently, so, I can't keep a job, I think. <laughs> well, I'm super honored to have you here with me. I've, I've known you, I think, for nearly a decade, as I said. Uh, you're super keen on entrepreneurship, and we're definitely going to cover uh, a lot of this today. But I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your background, because you um, come from a very accomplished family, let's put it this way. And, uh, and your parents were both lawyers, 
And they've also worked, um, they had some philanthropic projects where they work with uh, university students with, uh, by giving them access to music. So what I wanted to ask you is, why, why music? Why was music so important to them? You know, I think if there was a white noise or a soundtrack to my growing up, it was music with a particular emphasis on classical music. They are Italian, children of Italian immigrants, and I think that was very much embedded in them, and they always did that. My mom um, is really quite extraordinary. So she went to college when she was 14. She went to law school when she was 18 and was, I think, one of two women in her law school class in the late 50s and, um, you know, then went to work in a law firm in New York City. And uh, so always had a very deep passion about, you know, accomplishment, never felt inhibited about um, any kinds of issues about being a woman in her time and all. In fact, one day I asked her, you know, it's amazing you did what you did when you did it as a woman. And she looked at me kind of funny and she said, you know, my parents never talked about me being a woman. They just couldn't believe that an Italian got a job on a big Wall Street law firm. And that was her nature. But one of her first clients uh, was a woman who built what was one of the great music centers in New York called Caramore. And so she began literally as her estate lawyer as a very young woman. And then over the years, eventually got involved in the organization with his passion of music. My father, again, also came really from very little uh, just was raised with music. He loved music. He was a fanatic about it. He was a great pianist. And then about, uh, you know, over 10 years ago, he made a determination to marry his passion about educating young people with one of the things that very often young people don't have access to, uh, which is music and musical instruments. And the research is very clear about how young kids perform if they have access to music and arts in their lives and how they perform in school and how they perform on, on exams and all. So he built this an amazing thing. Um, which called ETM, and it has been a real impactful thing in the New York City area to help kids get access to instruments and teaching at times when many of these programs are canceling them. So, so were there a certain set of values that they that they've passed on to you that you and now you're a father of three that you were passing on apart from the fact that you're all Harvard grads in the in the in the family? Uh, well, not all, but um, look, I think they taught us. Um, First and foremost, I think they were very much educators by nature, and they valued education a great deal, and, and conversations at home were always sort of Socratic, if not outright, Italian-American debates. And, you know, you needed to be prepared. You needed to back up what you had to say with things that were important. Um, they combined that with a complete straight-as-an-arrow sense of integrity and character, and they backed it with a very deep conviction that you should do what you can to help people around you in any opportunity that you can to do it overall. Um, and they not only talked about it all the time, but they really, I think, kind of lived it, which, of course, is the greatest example that a parent can give to a child because kids know when parents are bullshitting them. So, you know, at the end of the day, you walk. The, like, it's like running a company, like you walk the talk or you don't. And anybody around you can tell the difference. That's very true. And you, what's the set of uh, values that you've passed on to your, to your children? I, I, I think there, there are a couple of things that are very similar. And that certainly, you know, we've exposed them to the world and have made them global, unapologetic global citizens, and, and they've traveled a great deal and think about stuff. But I think one additional element of, of valuing that uh, sense of service and integrity um, is to really throw gasoline on what you love. And there are many things I'm sure I've screwed up as a father, but one of the things I did when they were little was I kind of watched where they gravitated naturally, and then we would throw gasoline on it and, and sort of really support it, with a caveat being is that you, gotta, you have to have some stick to itness. And this is important. So if a kid wanted to try a musical instrument, that's great, but they couldn't drop it a week later. They had to, to kind of get through at least a semester of it and kind of get through a sense of commitment. 
And so it's been a balance of sort of saying, you know, you have to go for what you want to go for. But at the same time, you got to stick to it because, you know, as you know, as a great entrepreneur, uh, this is true in life, generally speaking. It's the stuff we don't want to do that tells us a lot about who we are because you have to do things you don't want to do. And you have to stick through two things when they're not necessarily that easy. Um, and it's not it's not easy to instill that. Uh, but I think it was something that we certainly focused on. Definitely, I agree with you on that. You have to stick to it, at least for a while, and then figure out if it's something for you or uh, or it's not. So, talking about your your career, I mean, obviously you've started your career in politics. Uh, then you were a CEO of uh, two corporates, and then you moved into uh, entrepreneurship, and you started Health Central, which is a which is a tech startup focused around health. So, were there I mean, what was the, was there a trigger there? What, what made you switch uh, from like a nice CEO job to, uh, to the hustle? I think if, at the very least, I was very much entrepreneurial throughout. I mean, when I was a kid, I had my own DJ business in high school and college. Like you did? I always was, yeah, yeah. Wow, was, okay. But, but by okay. the way, being a DJ in those days is not what you think a DJ is today. Like this okay. is doing like weddings and family events. Like it was uh, nowhere near as sexy as you're, you're lighting up as, as to be. But I loved music and I liked to do it. But more importantly, I liked trying different things. And frankly, that job ended up being a catastrophe. The, the business blew up, which was a very good, humbling experience um, early on. But I think I always had an inclination for wanting to go my own way um, and kind of figure out things that I love and try to make them happen. Um, but I was more of an entrepreneur in the corporate setting. So when I ran the digital businesses at the Washington Post and Newsweek, it was this completely separate company that reported separately to the board of directors. And there's a lot of you know co-work and co-authorship uh, with a traditional business, but we were also kind of unleashed to try to take this thing into a new area. But in that experience, I realized I didn't want to do just co-authorship. I actually had it in my teeth to solve a problem. Um, and that's when we formed uh, Health Central with some investors in the uh, United States. Um, the essence of it was, at the end of the day, came from personal experience, which is often the case in entrepreneurship, right? I'd gone through a period where um, my mother-in-law uh, lost a terrible battle uh, to cancer, and one of my closest friends lost a very long and terrible battle, a very brave battle, um, to depression, bipolar disorder. And in both these instances, I had no idea really what was going on. I had a thesis about what I could do to be most helpful, and you have a little bit of sense of my nature. I want to get in there and solve them and help them and whatever I could. But I found, they were very hard to find, I found these communities of people going through exactly what I was going through. So literally, I found a community of family members of someone having the exact same cancer my mother-in-law did. I found several communities of people who had friends who had bipolar. And I learned from these human beings that I knew nothing about, we had no connection other than this, that pretty much everything I was doing to be helpful was kind of wrong. And it was a humbling experience. How, how of, so? Again, the, the whole nature of, you know, I want to take charge and I'm going to find a solution. I mean, families often don't want that, at least not at first. You have to kind of lean back and they take the lead and you have to help them, you know, where you're asked to be helped and how you navigate that. Look, I, I'm, again, I'm a grandson of Italian-Americans, bipolar disorder, depression. I kind of never heard of it. It was sort of something that you just sort of well, get over. I, I couldn't quite process it. But through my journey with him and through these groups that I found, um, I, it was a complete journey of a revolution of the, of the power of individuals to take control of their lives to do the best they possibly can with it. And it was a trigger for me because it was hard to find these communities. And I and uh, the team that, uh, that we put together said, what if we could make this easy? What if we could build a platform of people just like you 
who've been through a, a tough health situation or a very exciting wellness kind of a circumstance, and you could connect them to share those experiences. And sometimes those experiences were clinical and medical, but 70% of the time it was how do you live your life on a day-to-day basis? And that was uh, the essence of Health Central. So you, you connected people around, around the health issue? Yeah, on, on their terms at great levels of specificity. So it wasn't merely the ability to have a platform to say, have women who have breast cancer. It was, I'm a 28-year-old mother with two children and a well-meaning pain-in-the-ass husband with breast cancer. And I want to meet people who are in my dynamic, who can share my real-life circumstances. How, do you, how did you make that switch? Did you just one day say, okay, I'm going to resign? Or did you start working on Health Central and the parallel? Or how, how did you do it? I had mentored a lot of different entrepreneurs and you know, was very deeply kind of involved in the broader, more tech media space writ large. So uh, I had had it in my teeth to do something. In fact, before I ended up running WashingtonPost.com, I was even tempted to do what a lot of people were doing at that time and go to Silicon Valley. But having said that, you're pulling on a string, which was a real weak moment for me. And it's something that I'm cautious about when I meet entrepreneurs now, which is intrapreneurs, women and men who are very successful in navigating kind of innovative areas within big companies, do not often make very good entrepreneurs. Because when you're an entrepreneur, no matter how tenacious you are, no matter how much you want to look at the world in a different way, in the background, you've got a balance sheet behind you, you have a brand behind you, people still answer your phone calls, your parents are proud of you. Like you're, you have that, and it's a Your mindset. Your parents are proud of you. <laughs> oh, it's true, true because they can tell they can tell you who you work, you know, who you yeah. work for. It's like a weird kind of a dynamic. And remember, my parents were extremely supportive of pretty much everything that we did, but they were lawyers by training, so it was a it's a different mindset, you know, that you have happened. And so what I would tell you, you know, Lulu was my first year at Health Central was one of my weakest as an executive, because I had to adjust. I had to pull out some of my natural entrepreneurial stuff back. I had to reaccustom myself uh, to doing a lot more hands-dirty things to get it done and to spend much more time uh, working with and building and cultivating a team and building a culture. Um, and it came, it came around in my case. And I have found sometimes that some entrepreneurs are fantastic entrepreneurs, but more often than not, um, it doesn't work very well. And so you have to really look in the mirror and ask yourself and really understand as best you can what you're getting into. But as you know from your own experience, you never really know what you're getting into until you're actually actually doing it. So you talk about your first year. Sorry, I want to like question you here because I, th- I find I think it's very interesting. Were you were did you feel that were you overconfident about your abilities like like most people usually in the corporate world are? Cuz sometimes like when I when I talk to people who are considering starting businesses, they would be like, "Ah, you know, I'll just build a website and I'll do this and it's like super simple and and then when they get to do it, then they see that no, it's actually not that easy. So, so is it overconfidence or, or is it just the fact that you don't have that backbone behind you anymore? And- In my case, a little bit more of the latter. I mean, I, you obviously have to have an element of, of confidence to just say, I'm going to build something that wasn't there before to break out. And then we convinced some very good uh, investors, uh, Polaris Venture Capital and Sequoia and um, Allen and Company, some very kind of established people uh, went for the journey with us quite early on. Um, but you learn very, very quickly that things that you took for granted and assumptions you make um, you know, necess- are not necessarily at the same level or standard of what your customers are expecting or what even you know, your experienced investors do. I can remember um, the very first cut of designs we did of some of the sites that we were creating. I shared with one of the top guys at Sequoia, and he said, I see what you're trying to do here. I think there's a lot of potential, but I would never go to this site. I'm like, what do you mean? 
And we had a long conversation about it. And he got me thinking about a bunch of questions that I didn't have to think so much about because millions of people went to WashingtonPost.com. Like they went because underlying it was a news product that they wanted. I now had to really convince people from the very moment they came onto our experience that they were like, oh my God, thank God this is here. And it just, you know, we did it. We ended up making something that was, which was something he went to regularly. But it was this kind of moment of kind of transition that, um, you know, was humbling, but it was good. It was very good. So you agree with your friend, Reid Hoffman, uh, his definition of entrepreneurship, where you run off a cliff and you jump off a cliff and you build a plane and then you, you know, on the way down and then you go back up. All the time. All the time. And I mean, it it is, it is not you. Look, you've experienced this, Lou, and the many things that you you have done yourself. Um, It is not a linear experience. I mean, in hindsight, it's a linear experience. Like we all want to say our lives are up and to the right and look back on it and say it was always like this. And obviously, in some instances, people have done that. Most entrepreneurial experiences are more like sine waves. Like you have this up, you feel like you nail it, and all of a sudden you're looking yourself in the mirror saying, I can't believe I'm going to have to fire a bunch of people. And then you start rethinking about it, and all of a sudden things start to go, and then a trajectory moves. But um, you have to steal yourself for it because, again, there's, no, there's nothing to fall back on. That's why Reed's analogy is so good. You are falling. Like, there's, no, there's no brand that's going to keep you from falling. So, um, you know, you have to just keep hustling. That's, that's, uh, that's very true. I was going to ask you, I mean, were there certain things that you learned in the corporate world that you took with you, certain characteristics or certain skills? There were, two, well, there were a bunch of things from my past that were extremely helpful in the way that I thought about uh, doing an entrepreneurial venture of my own. You know, I had spent, before I'd worked briefly in um, uh, government service, I actually worked in investment banking. So I had a very good understanding of how CFOs thought. I had a very good sense of how financing worked. I had a very good sense of, you know, what were the stipulations of it. And I had a whole bunch of relationships that I could lean on to help me think through different things in a tutorial, right? I mean, Brad Feld's book hadn't come out yet. Um, Scott Cooper's book had not come out yet. There was not a lot of pattern recognition on it. And I was able to have that kind of resource. And I could also speak the language. Um, being in a corporate world and certainly being um, in an entrepreneurial venture, uh, you learn about how much time you have to spend building culture. You learn a great deal about how much time you really have to think about what people around you are thinking. And this was, I learned this a great deal in my ex- entrepreneurial experience. And it's just been beaten into me. When you're the CEO or the founder, you have a lot of context of what's going on that nobody around you understands at all. And you can't explain all of it, and some of it is too early to explain, or some of it you don't even know fully yourself. But often you'll communicate to people as if they know what you know. And people never know what you know. And at the end of the day, most people are getting up in the morning and going to bed at night really thinking fundamentally is whatever you're talking about, Schroeder, what does it mean to me? Um, you know, it's always a combination of startup. Between one level, you want everyone's feedback, but at one level, you got to move. And you have a better odds of moving if people, in fact, understand what it is and where you're going. Absolutely. That's usually one of my recommendations to entrepreneur is that you have to try to pitch it to your, to your mom or your dad or your grandmother who know nothing about your field and try to see if they can understand at least the basics of what you are trying to do. Communication is key, by the way. Storytelling, I believe, like your ability to, to tell a story and communicate properly is, is, is extremely important as, a, as an entrepreneur. The caution you have to have is that you can get tied to the story. And you can get your culture tied to a story. And sometimes the data starts to question your story. I can remember a couple of moments when we would pivot into other activities or other products. People around me would say, well, wait a minute. I thought we were doing X. And then we'd have to sit and analyze like, well, we were doing X, but the market, you know, there wasn't the product market fit the way that we thought we are. We're seeing 
some real evidence that people are loving this. We're going to throw more gasoline on that, but, but it's jarring. And um, so you have to be tied enough to the narrative that people have a sense of your mission and your North Star, but you have to also be able to build in your culture the sense of flexibility that based on information, you're there for your customer and you're going to help figure out that solution. Based on what you just said, do you believe entrepreneurs make better investors? Look, I think there are different ways to think about it. And I'll talk out of two sides out of my mouth, right? At one level, I can make an argument that entrepreneurs are great entrepreneurs and investors are great investors. And I think this is very often the truth. The skill base, the musculature, the broad-based pattern recognition that you have as an investor, having seen many things like it, sometimes can be an encumbrance to you. But more often than not, you just have much more to be able to lean in in thinking about how to assess a company and what companies have been successful and which have not. Um, which is not necessarily the skill base of an entrepreneur who's gotten up in the morning, gone to bed at night, doing what she's doing and kind of thinking about what she's thinking about overall. So there is that trade-off. But overall is that if you've been in the shoes of that woman, like you just have a different conversation with them. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're saying. You have a sense of the pressures that they are under. You know that some finance person has bullshit them sometime in the past. You know that they're a little bit reserved about stuff. You want to make the environment safe so that they'll never surprise you, that they'll tell you what they're going through so you can help them solve their solutions and really build that connective tissue. And I have found that entrepreneurs know other entrepreneurs and they know great investments that are in potential that are out there and that they can speak a language once they're investing in an engagement, uh, which is very powerful. And so I think some of the best uh, venture capital operations that I see are kind of a mix where they've got folks that have been there before but also have done a lot of investing. And they may have people around there have not necessarily done it as much, but they really have a very good instinct about how to invest and how to structure a deal that's efficacious. Interesting. Well, I'd like to thank you, by the way, for uh, giving an example in the she, because usually in, in our part of the world, an entrepreneur or a business person is always a he. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very nice to, to actually hear. Can I, tell you, can I tell you a funny story about that? Is that all yeah, right? Yeah, sure. So, you were, so I wrote this book. You know, it's, or it's many years old now that we got updated, but it's still pretty dated about startups in the Middle East. And one of the things I really wrestled is, should I write a chapter about women in the ecosystem? Because it's a big issue globally, and it has certain dynamics of it in the Middle East. And it was very funny. I interviewed like 50 you know, women, a lot of different women. You were in the book. I was one of them. Yeah. You were one yeah. of them. But you're, you're an interesting example for what I'm about to say, because some of the women that I talked to were like, yeah, of course, I'll talk to you. Look, there is something distinct about being a woman in the Middle East, and I want to be able to put that out there and put it out there. Then there were other women, which you were one, are like, look, I know what you're going to do, because this is what gringos do, right? You're going to write a chapter about women in the Middle East, and you're putting there, I am not a woman entrepreneur. I am an entrepreneur. entrepreneur if you yeah. want, if you want to talk true. about my company, I'll talk about my company, and you put me somewhere else in the book. But if you're going to label me, I don't want it. And it's but that's, very. Uh, it's not about labeling, by the way. I'm, 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 I stick to that. But, uh, but I'm saying even, even when you're giving an example, when when the context is business, it's a he. When the context is family, it's a she. You know. So it's, it's, it's there's the stereotype all the time. So it's nice. Well, we got to gotta break that. We exactly. Break that. Big time. Big time. Yeah. There's, there's one thing I've noticed about you. I think you, you know everybody. You're everywhere. You're traveling constantly. You, you're into so many industries and boards. And, and uh, you know, so you're like a power networker. Um, do you have any tips for like, entrepreneurs that want to be like you? Well, I mean, there's a cautionary observation and then there's a tip, I suppose. And the cautionary observation is um, I think people over-network. And I think when people, really? and it goes to my tip, 
Yes, because I think at the end of the day, and I see this all the time, you've seen this in the Middle East, like all You're the time. You're talking about entrepreneurs now when you say people. It could be anybody. I think at the end of the day, let's take entrepreneurs as an example, because you and I would probably come up with a similar list of women and men who are this way. You know, they show up at all the events. You see them all the time. They're on the covers of magazines. They do all this kind of stuff. But it's hard to know what they actually do. Like, they're, they're so focused on the networking. They're not focused on getting up in the morning, going to bed at night, you know, with steel in their teeth to build product and get into the market. And they win awards and they aggregate a bunch of little pieces of money. And they're there and they're lovely people, but they're more interested on being on the cover of a fashion magazine than they are in actually doing the hands dirty work. And so I think you can lose yourself and sometimes convince yourself that being out and about is, is good for building. And it can be, as I'll come to in a second, but it's a cautionary note about where are the lines of it. And that's where the tip comes in, which is I've never thought of myself as quote unquote a networker. What I am is two things um, and have always been. I'm unbelievably curious. I just, there are things I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to piece together. And I know that more often than not, I just don't know anything. And so I like to be with people who understand these things. And, you know, hopefully my pattern recognition is of value to them, but, but it's just an opportunity to get to understand them and whatever, which it leads to the second element of it, which is I almost never ask anybody for anything. I mean, some, I've, I ask customers for things when I'm selling my product. I pitch money. I ask for money. But I'm not at this to, to build some kind of name brand thing. I, in fact, never talk about the people that I know explicitly ever. I mean, at the end of the day, I feel that we should be of service. And every good entrepreneur, if she or he is honest to you, they will tell you that their success was built on a network of people who bet on them, almost always never asking for anything. And I have found that in my life, that I've been able to have these amazing, you know, walks into communities because I'm genuinely curious and they know that in a heartbeat, I'll do anything I can to be supportive to them. At the end of almost every meeting I ever have with anyone, my last question is invariably, what can I do for you? And um, over time, very true. you build trust and that's what you've built. And it's not a network like, you know, you do this for me. It's not transactional, though there are sometimes benefits to transaction in them. It's really a long game of established relationship. Sometimes I've seen entrepreneurs uh, sort of like over over pitch investors or or be very aggressive in approaching someone and starting to pitch immediately. I mean, I don't know if it's the right way to do it. It's, it's certainly not my way to do it because uh, I find it, I don't know, very intrusive when you even even if you're in a networking event and that's the that's what you're supposed to do. But I find it a bit intrusive when someone just walks in on you and starts pitching you. Um, Look, I, let me drive the, the point home this way, because when you are at a, at a network event and they are not without value, I expect, like there's a context to it. I expect that people are going to come up to me and, and tell me a story. And, you know, I would like to do that too. More often than not, I'd like it to come from someone who, it's someone that I know, like there's some frame of reference, but I don't, I don't begrudge someone who's their job for being there is a fine investor pitch and we can begin that journey. But I think what people underestimate is that over the long term, the greatest challenge an entrepreneur has, an investor has, a friend has, is to find well-vetted quality human beings. And when I'm in a position that I've gotten to know you, I have an opportunity to do a favor to somebody else by the act of telling them you should meet Lulu, right? It's a favor to someone, not a distraction, not an ask to be able to say that this opportunity, this entrepreneur, this human being is really special. Like you can trust them, they have integrity, they will walk through walls, they will never let you down. I'm not really as much doing you a favor, I'm doing them a favor. Because the hardest thing for us to find are people that we can trust 
an outstanding talent. And so it really is a, a long relationship credibility building because the old cliche is true. You know, credibility takes a long time to build and you can wipe it out in one really bad moment. I wanted to, to wrap up the sort of the, the part about you a little bit or the getting to know you. You've obviously written the book, uh, Startup Rising. Um, and it's, is it, it's your first book, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's about the Middle East and North Africa region. Why? So my journey there was in some respects accidental and in another level not. I mean, I, as I described before, I've been a globalist. I'd been to the Middle East as a tourist and loved it, was intrigued by its history. Um, when most Americans ask me, why are you interested in the Middle East? Honestly, my first reaction is, why aren't you? It's been one of the most foundational uh, relationships, engagement in America, often with very complicated and very uh, uh, not good outcomes. And I think it's almost a responsibility to try to understand it more. Uh, but the epiphany came with your, your and my mutual friend, Fadi Gondor, and some other people um, some years ago, who began to talk very early about a very different narrative about the Middle East than anything that you hear about on CNN, even to this day, right? CNN and most of the news in America is about doom and destruction almost anywhere, but to the degree they talk about the Middle East at all, that's what they talk about. And here is Fadi and people like that saying, you, gotta you can't believe what this new generation is unleashing. Like, it's unbelievable. And look, I'd outsourced technology to many places in the world. I've been to many places in the world. I knew talent was everywhere. I even knew some uh, entrepreneurial activities were happening in places which were profoundly entrepreneurial anyway, but I mean, in a tech sense. And I got invited in 2010 for the first major gathering of startups in the Middle East that Fadi was one of the hosts of. And within two hours of being there, I knew my life had changed entirely because it was 3,500 young people who really didn't give a damn about any political circumstance. They were getting up in the morning, going to bed at night with a problem in their teeth they wanted to solve. They were often self-taught and very sophisticated about technology. There was another 3,500 young people on a waiting list trying to get in. Uh, the conversations I had, the mentoring sessions I had were phenomenal. Uh, I was so impressed by it that I went to Cairo and Amman um, on the same trip and saw more of it on the ground. And I came back from that trip and I wrote an op-ed about what I saw uh, that the Washington Post published. And um, often when people publish your stuff and other people think you actually know what you're talking about, which was, of course, absurd at the time. But I realized that I needed to understand that there was something very powerful and very hopeful coming. Uh, not only in the Middle East, but if it was happening there, as of course it was happening anywhere where people had access uh, to technology. And for me, the question of our era is not the tech itself, but the universal access to it and how this is evolving society, how this is changing opportunity for business investment, and how we can do problem solving bottom up in a way that you and I couldn't talk about really well even a decade ago. And so that's that at that point I was in. I wanted to understand the Middle East. And subsequent to that, I've been now spending time in you know, Asia, Latin America, a little bit of East Africa, and the stories are all the same. It's a very hopeful thing in a time where I think it's very hard for many of us focused on the general news uh, to feel very hopeful right now. So uh, speaking of entrepreneurship and, um, and young people, so if you were asked uh, to give a commencement speech for uh, students, what, what would you say today in June 2020? So what, what would you tell them today? What I would say today is more important and emphatic today, but it's been true, I think, forever, uh, which is that we have to really check our narrative bias. The story is a little bit, I was alluding to this before. We all have stories in our head. We have stories about ourselves. We have stories about each other. Right now, you have a story about Chris Schroeder. I have a story about Lulu. People who are listening to us have a narrative. And stories are really important, as you pointed out earlier, right? They help you 
have a cohesion of what you want to do, their communication to get things into action. But we can start getting into self-confirming areas that become very problematic. And we don't want to ask questions that challenge the very premises of the things that we believe. And in the era that we're in right now, social media has compounded this, right? I mean, invariably, we are following on Twitter and Instagram. People kind of think the way that we do. We're not necessarily open to hearing pushback and other data that conflicts the kinds of things that might make us walk in someone else's shoes in a very powerful way. It is ironic that in the first time in history, essentially all of human knowledge is at our fingertips essentially for free, and that same technology allows us to lock down in our narratives. And this is not just like in, you'd say in America, an old media, Fox, MSNBC thing. This is a day-to-day -day unwillingness of us to reach out and try to understand the other side of an issue in a substantive kind of a way. We move on to the next hashtag. We're busy in our lives. It's easier to ratify around a story that we have in our minds. And we're seeing now, I think, across the world, really multiple uh, problems of this. Look, I believe that Facebook and a lot of these big social media platforms, like every great innovative organization, should be rethinking things that they do. They should be asking about things that have happened unintended or intended that they can make things better. I don't have any problem about that. I think there's fair criticism of Facebook and other places that need to be absorbed. But I think the essence of fake news is us. I don't think we take anywhere enough individual responsibility for our willingness to say, if we see something, if it doesn't quite feel right, or even if it does feel right, is there another view that we can seek out? Can we aggregate our truths more? It takes a little bit more work, but not a lot. It takes much more consciousness, but not a lot. And I think at the end of the day, it's much easier for us to organize around what we already believe. And um, there is a multiplier price being paid for that today from any time in history. But it is something which I think has always been true. Absolutely important today, uh, especially since uh, what we see. I mean, you know, the, the, the technology has accelerated. I, I agree with you that it's also the individual's responsibility, but the amount of news that's just being shared en masse is, is just, uh, it's just incredible. So I'm going to take you back 10 years. And uh, I found a 2010 interview with the Harvard Business Review where you were speaking about creativity uh, and you talked about entrepreneurship as a form of creativity. And back in that interview, you said that um, the 21st century is the century where tech is essentially empowering people uh, because it helps us find information. I mean, you just said it, all the information is at our fingertips. It helps us communicate more and it helps us build uh, experiences. So you further gave an example about YouTube as a platform that helps people unleash their creativity. So is it still... Um, is it still relevant in 2020? I mean, 10 years later? I think that not only is it more relevant than ever, because 10 years ago, we would fantasize about the Middle East having two-thirds of the population with smart devices. And obviously, in the Gulf, we've gone way past that. And even across the Middle East, we're in that area, and that's true around the world. 10 years ago, we knew that a younger population was coming of age and was dominating 30 40 50% of a different country. That now generation is of age. Uh, who's never known a world without technology overall. But I think the, the real compounding and acceleration event um, that is taking this to a new level uh, is what we're going through right now with COVID. Because we've seen, in my view, a shift of virtualness and acceptance of virtualness from my mother to my child on, on believing this stuff actually works and can be embedded in our lives to a point that we actually want to rethink our lives. So 
uh, how we travel will become different because people are now comfortable with the interactions that are happening and like what we're doing right now. The act that I can now talk to a doctor in my bedroom and I could always do it, but now I'm comfortable doing it and she's comfortable doing it with me gives me a better sense of empowerment. I feel stronger and more comfortable in my bedroom than I do in a, in a place that I can't control overall. The fact that I can supplement my education well beyond anything that's available to me, you know, I think these are just profound shifts. The idea that Saudi Arabia and other countries have effectively said, because you can get infected with cash, you all now, now need to find a mobile solution to money. Like you don't go back. Once all of a sudden the world goes from, yeah, some places like China use mobile money, but other places it's still kind of gradual to all of a sudden moving. Like th this, is, this is like a cliche, but it's true. Five to 10 years of behavior shifted back into this multiplier effect of what I described 10 years ago with a huge, huge demand. And the demand is this. Everything I've just said, I believe, is true. What is also true is you pick the number. You probably have better research than I do. Two billion people on the planet still don't have basic access to technology at all. So what I have just said is compounded something that we've all put a lot of lip service to, but now we have to look at serious as a heart attack. We've all talked about digital divide for a decade or more, that there are people who are not getting access to the technology that you and I take for granted. But two billion people in a world of accelerated engagement into virtualness aren't having access to technology. That's like saying, yeah, you can go to work and yes, you can have a job, but you're not allowed to get on a road. Like, like that's what we're effectively saying to mass amounts of our populations today that we now have to address in a very different way. Because for those with access, things have gotten accelerated. For those who don't, there's a very deep risk that not only will they be left behind, but what an opportunity to help people become healthier, to become part of the economic system, to actualize their own visions, what they've had before. So um, yes, it's a, it should be a wake-up call as well. Three comments on, on what you said. The first one uh, about the numbers, by the way, I, I recently interviewed uh, uh, Ryan Karaki. He works at Google here and he yeah. told us that um, 200 million people in the Arab world don't have access to Internet. Going back Staggering. to your point. Yeah. And another talk that you did, uh, you talked about healthcare specifically and you gave an example about a nurse that, that uh, when you were at the hospital, a nurse came to you and felt by touching your hand that there was something wrong, something that all the machines and the reports uh, could not detect. So how do you, how do you replace that, let's say, in the, in the digital world? So the story that you're talking about was that I was in a hospital for a very simple procedure. It was not a big deal in any way. But for reasons that they cannot fathom, um, I got uh, uh, a pneumonia in the lungs, an infection at the hospital, kicked into my lungs while I was there. So literally, I'm coming out of stuff, things feel pretty good, and I, I think, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden, people start to panic, and they take care of me, do something called code blue, which meant they thought I was going to die, and then they fixed it. But the person who caught the problem was the nurse. It's exactly what you described. So there are two doctors around me looking at all my charts and all the mechanics, and everything was going fine. And a nurse kept holding my hand and patting my leg and saying, you don't feel right to me. Feel. And the doctor's like, what are you talking about? Look at all the numbers. The numbers are fine. She said, I know, but look at them. I like, look at them. I'm feeling his skin. Like something's not right here. And they're like, no, don't worry about it. One of the doctors even left. And literally at that moment, all my vitals and machines just dropped like in half. And she called it. She got people in motion uh, because of that, because there is something in human interaction. I think we've learned this big time also for all the power of Zoom, which I think is powerful. 
we have realized that this conversation we're having is special, but nowhere near as special, Lulu, if you and I were in a, you know, in a restaurant somewhere or we're going for a hike somewhere and talking about it. And there is something in human connective tissue, which I don't think will change. I think that AI and technology will take risk away from some of our jobs. I think they'll take some mundaneness out of our job. I think we can think more excitingly about what kind of work people can do anywhere in the world. We shouldn't assume that everything people are doing now is the best that we can do. But at the same time, I think the gaining question is, what is it we can do? What can be unleashed in partnership with the technology that's coming? So that element of what is unique about us as human beings will be manifest. And I think some of the more interesting entrepreneurs out there are thinking about that balance, particularly coming out of what we're coming out of today. Great. I was going to ask you, I mean, what are you, when you're looking at investing these days, uh, you are you are investing actively. So what do you what do you look for? Uh, I mean, are there are there specific sectors? Yeah, uh, as a word word of hope to folks in these kind of funny times right now. In the last three weeks, I've signed two term sheets, and a co amazing company uh, that that I and Reed, in fact, are invested in, uh, just got a very good A round uh, closed, and so like we're still moving. Like it's going to be hard for a while. Where, where is the company caution. based? Uh, the company that we just got the A round on, it was a New York based company, but it is helping with the remit. It's called Tap Tap Send. It's a, just these are great entrepreneurs. Um, and it's helping getting remittances from uh, Europe primarily to um, Africa, but it will expand really well beyond that. And just a tremendous amount of learning in COVID. It's been, you know, this is just as a quick digression. It's so fascinating. Like the last couple of months have been the best months in the company's history. And part of the reason for that is it's all been about mobile money and mobile remittances. And what you learn in this is that when everyone locks down in COVID, their traditional ways of going to a bank or Western Union, they cannot do. So they needed to find a solution to move money back home, and they found us. But look, I mean, I think this is a cliche, but it's unbelievably true, and you have lived this, right? It all begins with the woman or man building the company. It all begins there. In fact, I have to tell you, when I get pitched, and I get pitched every, literally every morning, I'm on Zoom till you know three in the afternoon receiving you know, pitches. And 80% of the time, I never get to the deck at all. Like, I want to talk to you. I want to know why you want to solve this problem. I want to know yeah. why you think it's important. I want you to know how big you think it really can become. There are many other things you can be doing with your life right now. Why are you doing this? And I asked some interesting gating questions, which really get a sense of, you know, how committed you are and how serious that you were thinking about this. I'll ask you, like, what are you going to do if this fails? And the answers are fascinating. There's a spectrum. You know, one end of the spectrum is, It'll never fail. I'll make it work. And that's okay, but maybe it means you're closed-minded. Other people will say, you can slow me down, but you can't stop me. And so um, I will listen to the data and I'll listen to the audience. I know I'm on a good problem. And if I can solve the problem better and differently, I'll get a good answer. And other people say, I'll go back to McKinsey, which is also a fine answer. But it's a spectrum of answers that tell me about you as the individual. And so that, to me, is where it begins. Having said that, sectors and countries matter a lot to us overall. And since right now my primary focus is in rising markets uh, with MBV and some other vehicles that I'm in, um, there are very key sectors which are benefiting by this acceleration that I'm talking about. So I think payments and fintech and particularly uh, lending, uh, SME lending, is something which is being unleashed to literally millions and millions of people who have never been able to get it before because historically they haven't been able to be credit scored and or banks just don't think they're worth their time. But now you can actually build all sorts of data about people's behaviors and predict who is likely to pay back and start building a track record there, which can be very powerful, both at the consumer level and the B2B. I believe that in most rising markets, 
the way trucking is done and shipping is still unbelievably antiquated. And so there are several companies, including one in Egypt we invested in, um, which is um, effectively kind of an Uber for trucks, but it's taking a highly fragmented industry, putting it on a clean, transparent platform and allowing your goods to be tracked, allowing trucks to go in and out more filled so the small business owners can be more successful. And this is going to be really, I think, very, very powerful overall. Um, and look, consuming is about to come back and marketplaces are really interesting to me. We've had some experience in property tech, which I still think will remain interesting. But I still think there are a lot of interesting dynamics of how people are engaging. Now, I have to tell you that I've been very skeptical about healthcare and education, not as a thing, but as an investment. They tend to be very long slog. They take a lot of capital. Often you have to navigate regulatory and established legacy issues, which are hard. But I'm going to start looking at these spaces again a little bit post-COVID because I actually think there are going to be behavioral things unleashed that might actually become more interesting and beneficial. And I think there's going to be some interesting conversations about how we value education. I mean, four-year education is what it is. But in point of fact, employers just want people who can actually do what it is that they need to have done. And there have been many solutions in process, but more than I'm seeing now uh, that I'll take a look at again in a way that I kind of ignored them previously. Great. Education is definitely, I mean, higher education is changing for sure. Uh, but I believe COVID now is accelerating the changes on the on the uh, schooling. You know, I mean, you, you describe me as kind of a Harvard family, and there's some truth to it. But my eldest son is like on his fifth gap year from um, a great uh, tech school um, uh, called Case Western in the United States. And he has been working actually in the Middle East with venture capital funds and startup stuff. And he's been traveling the world. And I don't, I don't know if college is, is the right thing for him. I think he's learning. He's, he's learned so much more by doing and by using technology than 90% of the college grads that I meet. And so life is going to change. I mean, you know, your parents still want you to go to X university and there is still some plenty of benefit to them. But I have this amazing... People that can't afford this kind of education. They can't afford uh, it, but they also are asking bigger and different questions. So I, had a, I gave a talk to a bunch of young leaders in Europe last summer, okay? It was about, I don't know, 200, 175 young leaders that were picked from around them, which means by definition... They probably went to one of the top schools there. And we were having this kind of conversation. And I asked at one point for a show of hands, how many of them think their kids will go to a four-year college? And like eight hands went up. And this is the new gen. These are like 23-year-olds who've just come out of one of those things who are saying there's just so much coming and so many ways to learn uh, that it's going to be a revolution. My issue as an investor has been how long will it take and how much money and capital does it take to get there? But I think, again, I, I don't know if what's just happened will change it that dramatically, but I think we can ask really, really exciting new questions about it now. I think the price tag of higher education is simply prohibitive for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I mean, if you want to go through four years of college in the U.S., you're talking probably $200,000, $250,000. That's least. a lot of I mean, you can start a business with that. You know, there's like a million things you can do. So, right. And you can learn online. There's like a million courses out there. So I don't know. I, I, I have big questions about the, the traditional uh, way of learning. If I were to ask you to describe entrepreneurship uh, in, in one word, what would you say? Tenacity. Tenacity. It, you know, you've li look, Lulu, you've lived this, right? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely. one of the great mentors and great experienced people in here like this. It's when everyone around you is saying no, that you just keep coming. And you go through these sine waves and you just keep coming. At some point you make a determination if it's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. But you go down swinging. 
And um, yeah, I think that's the that is the word. Agree. I'm I'm fully fully with you on this. And is there, are there any any parting thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Is there something that's inspiring you uh, these days? Uh, something maybe that's has changed that's uh, that you think we should know about? I think it's not so much that something has changed because I think you know you have lived this, and I think the people that are close to you and listen to you are of this ilk. But I will say it is time for us to step up. If this last year has taught us anything. And all of us have hopefully been trying to step up and we've been embedded in our lives that we want to step up in some form. We are at a historic moment of opportunity of, of actually having not only a desire to do something, but an ability to make things happen that we sometimes feel we're in the face of things that, that are too big for us to be able to do it, where in fact the opposite is the case. And I'll give you an example. So and it really hit me, I think, quite significantly. The, the amount of initiatives here in America and elsewhere to be helpful in COVID just it could be a neighbor helping a neighbor, but it could be people trying to get masks to hospitals or all that's been unbelievable. But the multiplier of things that could be launched when people think globally about this are very powerful. So a few weeks ago, a few young entrepreneurs that I've gotten to know in Estonia uh, had this kind of fledgling B2B platform that allows you to exchange ideas for corporations. And they were talking to the government of Estonia and said, you know, this platform could really be used and you could use Slack and other things. And we could have a hackathon to help on COVID in Estonia. And let's do this. And so the government supported it. They did it, got it up and running in like 48 hours, typical venture capital thing. And within a week, they had 1,800 participants, 40 ideas that were actually being put in implementation that ranged from cheaper ventilators to just kind of platforms of information that people could use. All oh, very good. Well, the internet being the internet, other people heard about it and started banging their platform. And like within a week, 100,000 people around the world in like 40 different countries were using this platform to do the same in their area, always focus on what they could implement from doing what they're doing. So they decided from there they were going to have a global gathering. And by the time they were done with all these different efforts, something like 250,000 people around the world and 90 different countries um, creating literally hundreds of now inimplementable funding ideas to help make the world better around COVID was done. This outpouring of desire to make impact, to take the idea I have and to make it something is unleashable in a way that is exponential from even the time when you and I met. And so I think this is just an incredible time for all the fear that we see in the news to say, now we can step up and do something about it. And um, that excites me no end. Maybe ask the question, uh, how can I be of service, which is something that you said that you, that you always ask people and see... What difference you can make? Uh, every, we are of service, um, whether we're creating the global hack or whether we're doing something else. Um, so yes, we have ambition. Yes, there are things that we want for ourselves and our family. But you know, why are we here? Great thought. Thank you so much, Chris. It was uh, it was truly enjoyable as usual. I, I love our conversations. So thank you for allowing me to ask the questions this time. Well, thanks for engaging. Uh, it's great. Look forward to talking again. Thanks. So thanks. Much. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.